0: The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera. Innovation and Stewardship for a Sustainable Tomorrow, by Xylem, Let's Solve Water, by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource, and by Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. This is Session 218. <sighs>
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey.
0: Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. By the way, Sarah started high school last week, and I think I first recorded her doing the intro when she was in third grade. You know, And for those who've been here uh, since episode one, we dropped Joey off at college this past weekend. Yeah, that's gray hair in the mirror there, Dave. Well, enough with the nostalgia. We need to move forward. And wow, there has been a lot of news in the water sector. We saw the Inflation Reduction Act pass Congress this past week which while aimed primarily at climate issues, we all know climate change and water impacts are inseparable. So really, it's a water bill that's masquerading as a climate tax and health care package. So while energy tax and health care provisions get headlines, water's the undercurrent to each of them, and the, in, the Inflation Reduction Act is a perfect segue to today's guest. We have the wonderful May Stevens on. May is the chair of the water practice at Banner Public Affairs, and this episode was recorded back in June, well before anyone thought the Inflation Reduction Act would even be a possibility. Remember, Senator Manchin had come out and said that there was no way he was passing a bill, and uh, the Democrats needed him in order to get the bill through, and he had said no, and it appeared any climate legislation was going to be DOA. Well, regardless, here we are. And May is here to talk about the Infrastructure Investment and in Jobs Act or, or Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or BIL, and she does a masterful job explaining the basics of the hill and water policy, and she unpacks the BIL, and her enthusiasm is absolutely contagious. You're going to see May as a family friend after this episode. It's terrific, so get ready for the Well, we always begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, and Black & Veatch. That, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry, education, and thought leadership here by sponsoring the podcast. Thank you all. And I'd like for you, the listener, to do me a favor, if you would, please. If you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact to that sponsor firm. And let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. That simple note of thanks will go a long way. It will surprise you. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership... Why not leave a rating interview on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Castbox, or whatever other podcast director you're accessing the podcast on? It'd be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Now it's on to our featured guest, May Stevens of Banner Public Affairs. So let's get that water flowing. Well, May, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So great to have you on. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Uh, terrific. So uh, could you give us a little thumbnail on how you came to the water sector, you know, what your background is and, and how you got here?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, I worked in the nonprofit environmental world for um, about nine years. Um, I have two environmental science degrees. Um, and then I decided to go work on Capitol Hill. Um, I worked in the House for uh, Congressman Carnahan from Missouri and then Congressman Cartwright from Pennsylvania. Um, and I wanted to go and work for members of Congress because I thought that is where you, know, you can make the world a better place and you can have the most impact on what's going on uh, in the country. And I was really excited about environmental work. But once I got to the Hill, I realized that what I was actually really excited about when it comes to environmental work is the impact that it has, you know, that the environment has on people. And that also includes infrastructure as well, obviously, right? And so when I moved from the House over to the Senate, I worked for Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. Um, he's a top Democrat on the Senate. Um, so he's a, he's on the Environment and Public Works Committee, and he's the top Democrat on the Senate subcommittee that does transportation and infrastructure. So I handled all of his environment and infrastructure portfolio. I did transportation Um, for him. And I did water infrastructure for him as well. And if anybody, you know, if any of your listeners are familiar with Senator Cardin, um, you know that he is very, very excited about water infrastructure. He's very uh, concerned about the Chesapeake Bay. That's one of the most important, um, you know, biggest uh, concerns in uh, the state of Maryland is the Chesapeake Bay. Um, And one of the, you know, things that he has done over his very long career is invest in water infrastructure in order to support the health of the Chesapeake Bay. So coming into his office, I knew I was going to be working on water a lot, but um, I was there for not very long before the Flint crisis uh, broke and it really sort of came to the, you know, sort of surface. It was in the news and like, you know, sort of the national news. Um, And sort of as that was bubbling up, Um, Senator Cardin came to me and said, you know, look, I have a long career in water infrastructure. Um, He also has a very long career in lead generally, um, especially on the paint uh, side. And so what he wanted me to do is go and fix the lead crisis and like everywhere. And I said, Okay, Senator, I will try and figure that out. And I was very nervous that I thought it was going to fail him. Um, But we worked out a deal not only to help um, the city of Flint um, deal with his crisis, but I also ended up writing on the Senate Democrats' response to the lead crisis um, that was then incorporated into the 2016 Wardaw Bill, the Water uh, Water Resources Development Act Bill of 2016. um, That included the the Flint uh, crisis Package as well. It helped 2,000 cities all over the country that have too high levels of lead in their water. Not just not just Flint alone, but 2,000 cities, at one in every state at least. And um, from there, I was hooked. I was so excited. The bill passed the Senate 20, uh, sorry, 97 to three, and um, passed the House unanimously and uh, signed into law. And I thought this is so much easier than anything that I'm working on in the environmental, in like strictly environmental space. And I just made a huge impact in a whole bunch of people's lives. So now I really only want to work on water infrastructure because it was just so fulfilling. And the people that I work with in the community were so great that I was like, I really just want to focus on this. So I stayed in Senator Cardin's office for a couple more years. I worked on the 2018, um, water bill as well. Um, and then I left the Hill in 2019 so that I could specifically focus on water infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, that's what I'm doing today It's just very much focused on water infrastructure, uh, legislation, everything that's, everything that's happening in Washington, DC. And there's, there's been a lot. So I'm excited to chat with you about it.
0: Yeah. Awesome. That's a great story. I really love hearing that background. I, now it does raise a question <laughs> for me. I've always assumed that congressional aides came from the district of the member of Congress. And it doesn't sound like that's the case because you've worked for Missouri, Pennsylvania, and Maryland uh, members of Congress. How does that process work?
1: Yeah, I've never, uh, I've never, you know, I'm not from any of those places. I'm actually, I actually grew up halfway between Detroit and Flint in Michigan, um, so I got a lot of phone calls from my parents during the crisis uh, saying, you have to do something. Why are you doing something fast enough? Um, but, yeah, I, I, I didn't live in any of those districts. But um, you are correct that most people come from the district. They start, you know, very young, right out of undergrad, um, or even you get an internship um, while you're still in undergrad um, with your member of Congress or your senator, um, you get that experience and then you start on the Hill very, you know, very young, like 22, just out of school. And then you work your way up from that. Um, and the best way, if you're, you know, a, a young person that's looking to get on the Hill, the best way to do it is to reach out to your member of Congress. Um, I had spent, um, you know, nine years off the Hill. I got a master's degree after that. Um, Working, you know, in the environmental space. And so I had a little bit more experience, a little bit more education than, you know, I did when I was 22. And so it was easier for me to fit into, you know, a more senior level to start out with, um, to just sort of be that policy advisor sort of starting out. Um, But uh, is that the shortest path to becoming a policy advisor? Absolutely not. You should start as an intern and and move your way up very quickly. (laughs) But um, it was a rewarding experience for sure. And, you know, a lot of times they just hire people because you're smart people, which is great because we need need smart people uh, in the, you know, in the uh, Hill and in the administration, um, as well as people who start very young and don't have a lot of Hill experience and then they learn on the job. So after a couple of years, they are very smart as
0: well. So that's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the Career Advice Podcast. Um, <laughs> so absolutely. <laughs> so uh, but but seriously, let's tr- there's obviously been a lot of water legislation. You've you've identified some of it, but the infrastructure investment and jobs act is is the big one. Uh can you kind of walk us through the water piece of the infrastructure investment and jobs act?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the bill goes by a bunch of different names. You will hear it being called IIJA or Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. Um, sometimes people call it IJA um, because they just say the acronym instead of spell it out. Um, but you're also going to hear it, um, talked about as the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, and, uh, because it was, is bipartisan, it had to do with infrastructure and now it is in law. So it's very exciting. Um, it was passed in November of last year. It had historic amounts of funding for the sector, um, a, a basically a tripling, an effective tripling of the amount of funds going to the state revolving fund programs um, over the next, you know, every year for the next five years. Um, they, uh, you know, authorized a much higher level of annual appropriations from now on. So that will also be included, you know, as we go forward. Um, the provisions every year, but then, and there are also a ton of programs that were created in that bill as well. And so, you know, there's everything from, um, you know, small and disadvantaged community, uh, technical assistance provisions to low-income assistance program, the first ever, um, the first ever federal low-income assistance program for the water sector um, is included in the bill as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that is fantastic, um, and so we're really excited about that. You know, once in a generation opportunity. It's very, very exciting. It's the most that the federal government has ever invested in water infrastructure in a single bill. So incredible. Um, what I will say, though, and I think that this is, um, you know, important for the sector to realize, is that. IJA feels like it got a lot, that it was a lot of funding. Bipartisan infrastructure law, it was, right? It was a lot of funding, but um, other core infrastructure sectors get many times more than the amount of money that we got in the bill. Um, the uh, transportation sector gets, you know, more than 10 times, got more than 10 times as much as what the water sector got, and obviously, I don't begrudge the transportation sector of the funding that they got. You know, we need investment in transportation as well. But I don't want people to think that, you know, oh, we got all of this money and now we can't ask for anything else. We should just stop asking Washington for anything because that's that is not true at all. We we're still going to have a big investment gap in the water uh, in the water space, and we're going to want to make sure that we are still filling that gap. This was a huge down payment and was fantastic we got to keep these levels uh, at the at the levels that they're going to be for the next five years. We got to keep those kind of forever because we've just got a lot of we've just got a lot of need in the in the industry.
0: Absolutely. I, I agree with you. Now, how, how can we get to that point? Because I think I think there's a sense out there amongst the general public, those of us in the water sector know that the funding needs to keep coming. But those of those in the the, the in Congress and in the general public may not believe that how can we message to those constituents that the funding needs to continue?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I mean, that is, that is the, you know, that is the key question, right? So, I mean, I think that one thing that's really important for the industry to do right away, right, right now, this summer would be great is, and if, if you have the ability to where, you know, if your listeners have the ability to and whatever, um, you know, company organization utility that they work uh, that they work for, if they can invite their members of Congress, regardless of party, remember, this is a bipartisan bill. so you shouldn't be shy about about inviting people. but inviting your members of Congress out to a ribbon cutting, a groundbreaking, there's a tour of a plant, even. I mean the number of members of Congress who have never toured a drinking water wastewater treatment plant is is shocking. Um, but then when you think of uh, like all of the things that they, all of the issues that they cover um, on a on a daily basis, um, it's kind of not surprising, especially because the water sector historically has been very, you know, modest, right? Um, We've been very much like out of sight, out of mind. And we thought that if we just, you know, if, if nobody heard from us, then that was good, right? Because that means that nothing was going wrong. But what we've realized now is that if we don't, um, you know, sort of show our wins um, and show this, the, like what this investment is doing in communities, you know, in these people's districts or in these people's states, like for their actual constituents, then we're not going to be able to get any more money, right? They're not going to, you know, they're not going to understand that the need and also the fact that. When they do something great, like invest all of this money, that it actually helps their constituents and makes their world a better place. Right. I mean, think what you want about, you know, members of Congress and politicians and and, you know, and everybody here in Washington, D.C., their, their actual job, right? Their, their actual job is to make their, their constituents' lives better, right? And so if you're able to talk to these folks and tell them about how what what you are doing with the federal funding at the local level in their, you know, in their districts for the constituents, that's gonna go a long way towards convincing folks that they gotta keep up the investment and that this is really good investment, not just for public health and the economy. But you know, for their you know for for their selfish political reasons as well, uh, wa- investing in water infrastructure is one of the most bipartisan uh, things that any member of Congress can do. Um, U.S. Water Alliance has some really good polling every year out of their Value of Water campaign um, that talks about just how partisan, how bipartisan water infrastructure is. Um, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, the 2016 and 2018 water bills were extremely bipartisan, especially because we were spending so much money in those bills. That you know, it is a really bipartisan thing, um, and it really makes a lot of people very happy, right? So if you wanna, you wanna show, you wanna show folks that there's this, you know, real value for them and their constituents, and then they're gonna wanna do it more, right? Uh, but then you also gotta make your asks, right? Um, you can show people how great the, you know, your system is, or the investment in their community is, or you know, all of the things that that you're doing that are really great in your community. But then you got to say, and if you want more of this, right, then you have to invest, you have to make that ask, you can't just show them that everything is going well, and then hope that they understand that you need more money, you got to actually make that ask. So
0: yeah, terrific. don't be shy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, great, great, practical pointers. Appreciate that. Um, uh, what about... The distinction between authorized funding and appropriated funding, because the, the I, IJA, I'll choose that pronunciation, uh, sure. <laughs> it, it authorized this funding, but what? How, how can you talk about the next steps and how that funding gets appropriated?
1: Absolutely. And that is a really good question that is very in the weeds in, you know, sort of what we do in Washington, D.C. But I'm going to try and make it as like, you know, as sort of obvious as possible. You don't have to know anything about uh you know, legislative procedure to understand this. But basically, the way that things work in Washington, D.C. is that there are authorizers and there are appropriators. And I like to think about this as sort of like my mom and my dad when I uh, was growing up. So when so I, if there was like a big ask, right, if there was a little ask, like, I want to, you know, I want some candy or something, my mom would just give it to me or she would say, you know, no and and you know, good luck to you, and, and eat your vegetables, right? <laughs> but that, so that's like that. Those are easy asks, but when there's a big ask, you need mom and dad to like sit down and talk to each other about about you know making the decision, right, together. Um. So I remember when I was 13, I got a land. I mean, this is really aging me. I'm a, am a millennial for sure. That when I was 13, I got a landline in my um in my bedroom, not like my own phone, like not my own phone line, just like a phone that plugged in, in my room. So I could talk to my friends on the house phone, right. That my parents could just pick up in the kitchen and listen, Like It wasn't that private, but that was a thing that was like a lot of consternation and a lot of family meetings. Right. So this is the same kind of thing, but we're talking about it and obviously a much bigger scale than a teenager getting a phone, right. As we're talking about billions of dollars in investment. So the way that it works in Washington DC is that, um, There are people that create the program. They're the authorizers. They say, okay, we want to set up, for example, a grant program um, that will help low-income families pay their water bills every month um, to make sure that, you know, the utility is getting paid for the water that they're using to make sure that they're not, uh, you know, in arrears or, you know, in debt or getting their water shut off, that like everything is sort of like continuing to function, right? So like we're creating that program, we're creating that grant program. And then we have to get, so mom mom creates the program and then dad, the author or the appropriators, they fund the program, right? So you can't just like create a program and fund it yourself because that also like, you know, can lead, you know, there's a reason why we set this up. You know, the, the founders of the country set this up with this, with these checks and balances, because you don't want the person creating the program, funding it and then putting their friends in place to run it, and, and all the money suddenly goes to their district and whatever, right? So you have the authorizers that create the program, and then you have the appropriators that fund the program. And then only once you have both of those steps, then the the grant money actually goes out the door, right? And so for in IIJA... Um, there were a lot of programs that were authorized and appropriated in the same bill. That doesn't often happen, but on big bills like this, it sometimes does. And so that that uh, happened for the state revolving fund money, the PFAS money, the lead service line replacement money. Those are sort of like the big ticket items that everybody heard heard about when they were talking about the bipartisan bill, right? But There are all of these other programs, like the low-income assistance program, like technical assistance programs for small communities, right? resiliency programs, resiliency uh, grants to utilities on both the drinking water and the wastewater side. There were CSO and SSO grant programs. All of those were created. They were authorized, but they were not appropriated. So when we talk about $55 billion, we mean $55 billion appropriated, real money going out the door that there are all these other programs that were just authorized, they were not appropriated. So the next step now is, you know, we got mom sign off. Now we got to get dad sign off. We got to go to the appropriators and say, can you please fund, um, can you please fund these programs? And, um, you know, sort of everyone in the water sector is, you know, signing on and working in concert to get these, uh, to get these uh, programs, um, you know, actually funded so that EPA can stand them up. Um, and, and it's great that the, you know, sort of the entire uh, industry has come together around, around this, but it's really important. And it it also shows that we are much stronger together, because if each organization went separately and asked for their separate specific program, we probably wouldn't get any of any of them funded, right, because it's just, you know, there's not enough people who care Right. If there's just one or two organizations for each program, then if we get all the programs together, and we say, you know, here's you know more than a dozen water organizations that are signing on to this, saying, you know, this is important. Then we really, you know, get some, you know, we can really get some, you know, oomph behind it and get some stuff done. Yeah. So that's the next step. We gotta we gotta make it happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's let. Then that's a great segue into implement, implementation. You kind of referenced yeah. it earlier that EPA needs. Uh, needs to get the money out the door. Needs to get get their budget uh, increased uh, so that these appropriations can can go out. Can you talk about that implementation piece of the IIJA?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the money is at EPA, and they now have to get this money out the door to um you know to like states to administer the state revolving funds. The PFAS money and the lead service line replacement money also go through the SRFs. So it's just, I mean, you know, your listeners know but, you know, better than anybody that there's just a lot of people that need to be in place to make those things happen, to make sure that we have the, you know, the intended use plans that match the amount of money that we're getting from the administration for each state, the EBA has to go through those intended use plans and make sure they're, you know, all up to speed, the money goes out the door, and then the state has to get the money down to the local government, right? And or the, the local utility, whoever is getting the state revolving fund money, right? So There's just a lot of steps that need to happen. And with each step, there's a lot of decisions that need to get made. So, for example, one of the big um, emphasis that the Biden administration has is that they really want to make sure that this money is being invested in disadvantaged communities. Um, And they have this Justice 40 initiative where they want to, you know, it's like a, it's like a guidance, like, right. But like what they would like is to have 40% of the funding in um, directed towards disadvantaged communities. Now the, the language in IIJA for the water sector actually goes above and beyond that and says 49% has to be at disadvantaged communities. It has to be invested in, in a disadvantaged community. Um, and so what does that mean? Like, what does that term mean? Well, We only have definitions for disadvantaged community on the drinking water side. We don't have them on the wastewater side. Although we do have affordability guidance on the wastewater side. But that's a little bit different because that's community affordability and disadvantaged communities might have a different definition than just affordability, right? It could talk about uh, historic investment. It could talk about the size of the community. It could talk about you know the socioeconomic and racial makeup of the community, right? And so um, disadvantaged community has different definition in every state, um, and those definitions vary incredibly. I mean, just like off the charts. They they're the the comparison. I mean, you can't even compare two states to each other. So making sure that those states know what their definition of disadvantaged community is, updating it if it needs to be updated, communicating that to EPA so that EPA is understanding that, um, you know, what their definition is, making sure that those dollars are going to whatever that state's definition of disadvantaged community is, right, we have all 50 different uh, different uh, definitions, so now we have to match all of the money to all of the different states, and then make sure the money is going out the door then like every step after that has just as many considerations. And I, you know, I didn't even talk about Build America, Buy America or Davis-Bacon or, you know, waiver process or all of the things that go into each step of the money going from one person to the next. But the reason why that's so important, I think a lot of people certainly would say that seems like a lot of bureaucracy. Why can't we just get the money? Because we want to make sure that the money is going to the, you know, projects that are most impactful, right? I think they're... There was a lot of talk in, um, you know, in the 2008 uh, crash, right, economic crash, and then um, the 2009 um, Recovery Act bill that we just put uh, money towards shovel-ready projects, and that was great at the time. Like, we needed to get, you know, the money out the door. We needed to get people back to work, but we've now sort of come to the understanding of shovel-worthy projects not just shovel ready but also worthy right so not throwing bad money after you know good money after bad and really making sure that our investment is thinking about it for the long haul right so building in resiliency um, making sure that we're directing money towards, you know, communities that haven't gotten a lot of investment in the past. You know, now, now is the time that they, you know, now is their chance to get investment. And so that's really important as well is to make sure that we're moving the money, money to the right places instead of just getting it out of the door as fast as possible. So we're really learning from our, you know, previous experience but that's really important to think about, you know, it's that's really important piece to think about as well Is that, you know, every step of this, we've really got to keep an eye on what's going on and make sure we know what's going on. If we have opinions about that, you know, opinions about what might happen, we need to, you know, register those um, at each different, you know, federal, state, local level.
0: Yeah. So let me ask got a you, lot of
1: work ahead of us.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you this. You, you, you've mentioned that this is Um, his, a historic level of funding that's coming down the pike are states prepared. Do they have the, for, for lack of a better word, do they have the infrastructure in place to handle this influx of, uh, of money coming from the federal government and get it pushed out, uh, and get it out into the communities? Is there any concerns? Yeah. I mean,
1: that's a great question. Yeah. And I love I mean, I love thinking about it in terms of like human infrastructure. Right. Like this is the human infrastructure. These are the people that are actually taking money from one place to another, issuing the checks, you know, doing the big check signing ceremony. Right. Um, And so that's really important. Right. Those people are the people that actually make this whole process happen. Um, And so, you know, to your question, like, do the states have the capacity to do this? Uh, I think you know there are you know a couple trade associations that are working really hard to make sure that that happens, right? There's ASWA, Aqua, and Sepa are like kind of the three big trade associations in d c for the drinking water administrators, the wastewater, you know, the people who um they don't just do wastewater, they they the aqua sort of uh, they enforce the Clean Water Act. So, and do a lot more than just on wastewater. And then CIFA are the, you know, infrastructure finance authorities, right? And so those those three, you know, sort of entities are doing, you know, a really good job of staying in touch with EPA and making sure that the states have what they need. But um, the states are also doing a great job of communicating their needs to EPA and making sure that EPA knows, you know, what is needed at each level. The other thing that I would say too is that there are... You know, there's not we we talk about technical assistance for communities, especially rural, small, disadvantaged communities, and we can talk you know sort of more about that in a second. But the like we also need technical assistance for states as well, right? And just if you have to send out triple the amount of money next year you're going to need triple the amount of people. And so what are the best practices to hire that many people very quickly, especially in a job market where we're very lucky, but, you know, uh, unemployment is, you know, at record lows. Right. And so it's very hard, you know, people are competing, you know, within state agencies for talent that makes it really difficult to hire and retain those folks. So even getting that technical assistance of just like, how do you, Get the folks, you know, interview the folks, win, win them to your, you know, to your team, and then get them onboarded as fast as possible. There's a lot of information sharing between states and between EPA and the states on how to on how to make that happen. Um, but that's, I mean, it's a really good question, and I think it's a big concern for states. But I think, you know, I mean, we're talking about a lot of money for the thing that we all care about most, and that doesn't mean that. It's going to be an easy time, but it means that, you know, we just, we're sort of like the dog who got, who caught the car, right? We just got everything we ever asked for. So like, let's make it happen, right? We'll just, you know, do our best and and make sure that we're, you know, we're, we're doing what needs to get done to, to help people and to, you know, to do our jobs. So.
0: Right, right. So uh, has there been any concern? You, you mentioned the current economic climate with the tight job market. Is there any concern about the, the other economic indicator or the other economic factor of inflation taking a significant bite out of this historic funding? Yeah, I
1: think that there is. And I think that we're already seeing folks, um, you know, when they're doing contracting, seeing costs going up. You know, we've been seeing that for a couple of months now. Some of that. You know, I will say some of that is definitely supply chain issues and the actual cost of their um, inputs going up for sure. There's also the fact that there's a lot of money out there. So like you can, you know, consultants can charge more and, you know, and and you can ask for more when you're not just consultants, but if you're, you know, if you're selling pipe, right, if you're selling water mains you can charge more for uh, the water mains because you know the community has the money to pay for it, right? So there is a little bit of just like economics that is happening that is sort of out of people's control, but it, that doesn't mean that it's not a concern for folks. And it's it doesn't mean that it's not, um, you know, something that we need to like make sure that we're addressing. But I also think it's a, it's a more global economic um, issue. And so there's not really much that any like one individual in the water space can do about the like, global inflation and, you know, and, and, and the global economy. Right. So just something that we have to understand is happening. And then, you know, you face it, right. And, and, and try and figure out the best way to deal with it.
0: I agree with everything you said in there. (laughs) Um, so may, if I can ask you, we've, we've, we're coming up quickly on the end of our time together. So could you, if you've got a leave behind message, what would that leave behind message be?
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, This is the this is the thing that is most near and dear to my heart. This is the call to action that I tell everybody. Um, Water stakeholders need to advocate for themselves. So that they can capitalize on this historic opportunity and also just let people know let, let people in DC know what you need because people are not gonna understand what the sector needs unless they hear from us, right? There's 350 million people in the United States, all of them have opinions on what Washington, DC should be doing. So if you are not giving your opinion and the and the sector is not giving their opinion as a whole, then they're not, then members of Congress aren't even gonna, you know, remember you exist, let alone want to do something to help you. Um, they won't even know what to do to help you, right? And so you want to make sure that you're talking to your members of Congress. Um, you know, talk to your trade associations. Like, uh, if you work at a company, you'll have an internal government affairs folks. Um, let them sort of guide you as to what uh, what to ask for. Um, but you don't have to hire a fancy lobbyist. You don't need to, like, Come, you know, move to Washington, DC to advocate uh, for your cause. You uh, can do that from home um, and, you know, keep your day job, and it's great. Um, the one thing I will just say that is, you know, sort of, or I guess the two things that I would say that are really, really important to do to be doing right now um, is to advocate for full funding for the bipartisan infrastructure law programs um, in the FY23 appropriations bills. Everybody in the water sector is working on this. It's a big concern for everybody. So um, you can go to any, uh, any of the usual websites to find out more information and talking points on those. Any of your trade associations will be able to help you. And the other thing I would just say is, you know, what we talked about before, hosting site visits with the press, with elected officials to show off the great work that you're doing. We don't brag enough in this sector about all of the amazing things that we are doing for the world. Um, and we really need to be able to show those real tangible benefits um, to members of Congress and, frankly, to the public as well, um, so that they can be, you know, excited about the work that you're doing and also want to support you even more. So, um, making sure that you're, you know, reaching out to stakeholders or, you know, reaching out to Washington DC, looking up your members of Congress. If you don't know who your members of Congress are. Uh, don't don't admit that publicly. Just go to house.gov and type your uh, zip code in at the top. Uh, you will not be shamed or embarrassed. Uh, just uh, type your zip code in at the t- you know the top uh, right corner, and it will tell you exactly who your member of Congress is. It'll give you the phone number that you can call to call them. Um, and you should do that regularly. Don't feel like you called once and then you're done. You can call, you know, once a month if you want, just let them know that you're still watching, you're still waiting for the, you know, piece, you know, to for the, uh, programs to be appropriated or whatever other thing that you, you know, care about. Uh, you can just let them know that you're still there and that you're still paying attention. Um, and that really, really does do a lot of good, um, a lot more, than a lot of the other things that we normally think about uh, as, you know, being effective uh, advocacy in Washington, D.C., um, is hearing from uh, constituents about their real life concerns is the most important thing to members of Congress. It's the thing that sways them the most more than, you know, campaign donations or any any of the other things that we think of. Uh, that is really what matters most. And, and we have that in speeds in the water sector. So we just need to, you know, raise our voices, make sure that make sure that they're hearing us and we can be really effective. But it takes every single listener, every single person in the water sector uh, needs to call and then keep calling. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, May, for those who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to get that information?
1: Oh yeah, they can go. Um, so our website is banner public Um, and you can look for the uh, water practice on the, on the front page. Um, or you can go to banner public slash water. It's there too. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn, um, message me on LinkedIn. I respond to everybody. Uh, it takes a couple days, but I will respond to, I will respond to you. If you message me. My contact info is there as well. Um, I'm on Twitter at May Steven, so you can find me at all of those places. I look forward to hearing from your listeners. This is great. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, thank you so much for coming on, May. You've been, you were absolutely terrific. I really enjoyed our conversation and you passed along a lot of great knowledge. So thanks again.
1: Thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate being on it. Um, and I love your show. So this is, this is a big honor. So oh, thanks so much.
0: Oh, well, thanks so much. All right. We'll talk <laughs> to you soon, May. Take care. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> truly outstanding interview by may her enthusiasm is contagious and her knowledge of the system gained through her years of experience and the positions held at various levels and for various congressional representatives is just absolutely amazing uh i'd love to know what you thought about the interview please check out the show notes for this page uh and the links on the episode just google the water values podcast click the first link that comes up that's our home on the web that bluefield research is kind enough to provide via a joint marketing arrangement again The Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are not affiliates. We just have that joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, we get a home on the web via Bluefield Research. Well, you can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag Water Values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the Water Values newsletter at that landing page as well. Well, thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2022 calendar year include CanDo, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, and Black and & Veatch. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders providing their support. And again, thank you for support and for listening. I can't tell you how great it is to work in this industry day in and day out with such caring and dedicated personnel, and it's just it's just a blessing I get to work with you and interact with you every day. So thank you for that. Finally, and in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.